Hey everybody, it's Chad with I Want to Know. I'm here with a new friend of mine, Andy Casali. Ka- Casali, I'm horrible at last names. Friends who've known me for ten years still say it wrong. So. Oh, well, that's yeah, good. It's all no, good. I don't yeah. feel like a retard. I've practiced people's names, and then I go in front of the mic, and it comes out all wrong. <laughs> So uh, I met Andy through uh, my church and through a group we're doing in our church. Um, he's got a degree in, uh, sorry, a bachelor's in ling- linguistics, um, teaches ESL, and a bachelor in education. You right? got it. Yeah. And it, not currently teaching ESL, but yeah. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. What are you currently teaching? Uh, I teach special education. So my class is uh, students with autism right now. Okay. Yeah. I have... Um, a cousin in Kelowna that's um, studying psychology, and she works with mostly autistic kids. So I think she's graduated now. She might actually be a psychologist. I should probably know. but I uh, won't tell her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully she's not listening. Uh, so yeah, how's it going? Not too bad. Yeah. We were just talking about you being new to uh, Airdrie and trying out a bunch of churches and stuff like that. And so um, you had gone to uh, Victory Church and Alliance Church and Big Hill Springs, whatever the one we were talking about. Uh, And you've only been here in our little town for since September, you said? Yeah, basically. How much are you loving it? You know, it's taking some getting used to, I'll be honest. Uh, We've been in, in BC, Langley, BC, for basically the past 12 or so years. Yeah. Uh, my wife's from Airdrie originally, okay. so it's you know it's that weird feeling where it's like home, but it's not home anymore because she's been gone long enough. Yeah, and you know her friends are gone for the most part, all the rest. How long since she lived here last? Uh, we did one year here uh, in 2015, 2016. Yeah, I was taking some classes at U of C, uh, that kind of thing, to get actually get into the B Ed program I did in uh, in Abbotsford, but. Before that, it was 2008, so she moved out there for university. We met at Trinity Western University in Langley, Yeah, and then we just stayed, got yeah. married out there, stayed out there, started a family there. Airdrie has changed so much since 2008. It's probably tripled in size, would be my guess. Yeah. Um, I still love it. I still really enjoy it. I like the little town feel that we have here. Um, as you know, we were talking before the podcast, I sometimes have a, a co-host and he hates his town with a passion. He's like, everyone here is broken and they're, you know, they're, they're lazy and they're single moms and they're right. like, there's, and eh, maybe, maybe it's true. Right. I don't know. Most of the people I know aren't like that. No. I, and I think it, our experience of where we live is, I think, so shaded by who we know, our circumstances, you know, at that point in our lives. Yeah. You know, what, what else we've got going on. Um, there's truth to, you know, each community thing has a flavor, but. I remember hearing this story. I hope I get it right. But it was a guy that uh, he'd been living in this town for a long time. And he got two new neighbors, one on either side. He goes over to the right side and he says, uh, um, where are you from? You know, um, how's life? That kind of thing. He's like, oh, the last town I lived in, it sucked. It was horrible. You know, the people were rude. You couldn't get any help. You couldn't anything. And he's like, you're probably going to find the same thing here. And he goes to the other side, and the guy's like, oh, uh, you know, my last town was awesome. We were sad to leave. We had all these great friends. Um, you know, he's like, oh, you're probably going to find new friends here. Yeah. And it's really about your attitude that gets you through life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree. That's been my experience for sure. And we, it's funny because we talk a lot about, you know, where do we want to settle long term as a family? And that kind of thing comes into the conversation, you know, like the flavor <laughs> of the community or the people and you know, are BC people more, you know, outdoorsy? <laughs> are they more yeah. environmentally conscious, more friendly, whatever? And I think sometimes we feel that 
that might be true. And then other times we feel that's probably just been our experience of the different places we've lived, or you know, maybe we were engaging more in outdoor activities, or those are the friends we had, right? And then we yeah. paint, we paint broad strokes. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. I know with the very first church I went to, which was Airdrie Alliance, we sort of left because we didn't feel connected there. And uh, so we moved on to another church. We found victory, got very connected. But I had made a mental note that I wasn't going to let that happen to me again, mm-hmm. that I was going to take control over that and make sure that I stayed connected the way I wanted to. Why am I allowing 200 people to control how I live my life? And so when I went to our next church, it was a matter of weeks, and I was connected with nearly everybody. And that's always kind of been my my mentality since then, that I'm not going to wait for something to happen to me. I'm going to go out and I'm going to make it happen as much as I possibly can. Absolutely. I remember when I was a teen, one of my mentors said to me, it's like, you know, 90% of what you get out of an experience is what you put into it. Mm. And, you know, time and again, that's proven itself to be true in my life. And I think it's the times when I'm the most, uh, you know, frustrated or bitter when I really have to ask myself, like, well, where is this really coming from? Is it the other people or is it, <laughs> is it me and what I'm bringing to it, right? Yeah. You, um, it, it definitely can be the other people too, though. It right? can be. It can be. Yeah. It's not all, it's not all within our, I don't know, our uh, control, but we do get to decide our outlook on things and our approach anyway. So. Yeah. So what kind of um, mentor did you have when you were younger? You don't hear many people talking about, you know, I had a good mentor. Right. Yeah, this this one in particular, his name is Kevin Fitzgerald. He was uh, my youth pastor for most of my high school. Um, but I, I found that I really, I was blessed to have a fair number of male mentors in my life, mm-hmm. in high school in particular. A um, couple of my teachers, coaches, and, you know, it's the whole cliche of uh, village is needed to raise a child. But I, I, I found that to be true in my life. You learn different things from different people. And, you know, even more so from what people say, I think you learn from how they are, you know, how they act, how they treat others, how they carry themselves through life. And just seeing, you know, as a young Christian, the different ways that Christian masculinity could look, you know, from my father, from my teachers, from my uh, youth pastors was, was a real gift. Like it would have been a disservice to me if I had only had one male figure in my life, right? right? Um, so yeah, I count myself really blessed because it's just that much richer. Yeah. I, uh, my experience with Christians growing up, cause I didn't grow up in a Christian home, far from a Christian home, um, that most of the Christians I knew were super judgmental. The women wore the pants in the family and they weren't very pleasant. Right. And the men were this, these, I'm going to use the word meek, but that's not what I really mm-hmm. mean. I, I know what the definition of meek was, but they were almost cowardly. Um, right. and, and so most of my life, I had no desire to be part of Christianity. I'm like, if that's the way men are, I don't want to have men friends like that. If that's the way women are, I don't want to marry a Christian woman. But I was looking at it from such a small pool, right? It's just this, you know, as a high school kid, I was grade eight or nine when I met these people. And for the five years of high school, I was, you know, in and out of their lives and went to a couple of youth events with uh, the kid that I was friends with. And I'm just like, this is horrible. Right. Like, I grew up with an alcoholic dad and a gambling mom and, you know, it was all these rough tradesmen. And I looked at these Christian people. I'm like, oh, they don't know how to do <laughs> anything. You screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but you're right. I, I learned more as I got older and I found people that I, I do have good men mentors with me now and, and uh, men that hold me accountable and, and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I found, so one of my, um, 
professors when I was doing my bachelor's of education, one of the things he said to me uh, was about mentorship. And he said, you know, every, every young man, and, you know, for, I think women, there's parallels to be drawn. Every young man needs to uh, have uncles to learn from, because there's certain things he's never going to learn from his father. Right. Because he's his father. Right. He's in an adversarial relationship. Men in general grow up in a, in a dialectic of adversariness, where women, he said, is more relationship is how they see the world. And so your father is sort of this figure that you, in a way, need to go overcome so you can become oh, your own yeah. man, right? You need to... He, he used the word slay, metaphorically, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's certain things that you just need to learn from other people because your father, in a way, has a different, has a different role for yeah. you, right? So I, I, I've found that to be, to be true. We, we, learned, we need different people to learn from. Oh, for sure. The, yeah. I remember someone telling me, I wish I could remember who, but they said basically you need to have a friend from a different culture, from a different uh, financial background, from a different cultural background, from someone that came in from your city that's not from around, yeah. you know, someone that's been in that city for a long time. Like you just need this really diverse set of people around you where you are always learning um, a new way of looking at it, a new perspective. And I've been lucky enough in my adulthood, I found that, understood the value in it, and went after it wholeheartedly. And it's sort of around what we do with the podcast, right, is I want to meet and know. It's called I want to know. I mm-hmm. want to know everything I can about people and the way they think. And I told you before, my original plan for the podcast was to you know, find a teacher, a doctor, and a lawyer and ask them the same, same 10 questions so we could get to understand a lawyer's perspective. But then as I started doing that and meeting people and talking to them, the, I could talk to four lawyers and get four different perspectives. Right. It wasn't about their job. It wasn't about, um, it was about every aspect of their life, every person that had spoken to them, every person that had uh, been mean to them or nice to them or, you know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. just so much that feed into why we think and say the things we do. Absolutely. And our job, and I think in, well, maybe in lots of parts of the world, but in particular, in our culture, I think we really define ourselves as men um, by what we do, you know, oh, how, sure. we, how we pay the bills, uh, you know, our identity can become so wrapped up in that. But the reality, like you've said, is that we're we're whole people so much richer, hopefully, than just what we do yeah. from nine to five or whatever, right? Yeah. So... It's cool that uh, that you had those mentorships, and I see people that that have those in their lives tend to be a lot more successful. You know, I grew up not even knowing that I could get a student loan and go to university. Right. I just thought, I'm going to be a drywaller. Right. So I became a drywaller because right. that's what my dad did. Because there was no other option to me at that time. I did. I just didn't know them. Didn't even know to ask the question. Right. But if you have thirty, let me say thirty. Let's say five male mentors in your life that have one is well educated and one's a trade person, you get to talk to them and figure out, do mm-hmm. I want to do trades? Because there's nothing wrong with it. I made a good living doing trades. But I would have probably picked an education right. had I had had I known that that was an option right. for me. Well, I think we we base our assumptions and our understandings off of the examples we have, right? The models we've seen lived. Yeah. And if we don't have those, uh, like you're saying, you know, if we don't know someone from another culture or from another background, whatever, we're just going to see the world from... A perspective that lacks those other options, right? Exactly. Um, my brother, he's actually in trades now, and he he had a master's in education, was a teacher for several years, and now he's uh, he's a contractor, and he's he's like this is he's like I, I'm going to tell my girls don't go get an education, don't pay, yeah. you know, don't take on two hundred thousand. He's in the states. Don't take on massive crippling debt. 
Yeah. There's so many other jobs you could do. Or, you know, if you, if that's the path you want to take, then take it, but don't assume that that's the only way. And I think part of what he's speaking to is what you're saying. Like His model was you need to go to college, yeah. take on those loans, and then get a job and pay them off for the course <laughs> of the next 15 or, you know, 30 years or whatever it is. And he, he's been very frustrated that that was, I think... Yeah, presented as the dominant narrative for him anyway. Right? But how does an 18-year-old know what's the right path to take at that time? Is it education? Right. Maybe I just wouldn't have had the ability at 18 that I do now. Right. right? And do I go into education now? Do I go back to university? Maybe. Right. Uh, I like Jordan Peterson's uh, thought process. He wants to get rid of universities completely mm. and have everything online, podcasts, YouTube videos, all that kind of stuff, and then um, have a testing facilities only. Hmm. And so you can get together with groups and watch videos and read the books, do have the discussions, uh, maybe even do video calls with a with a professor if you're stuck or you really need right. uh, some motivation. Right. But having a $50 billion building to, mm-hmm. to run the students is probably not a great way to do it. And having people come out with $200,000 yeah. of, of debt that you can never get out of right. is scary. Yeah. Well, I um, remember hearing or reading from, I think it was Noam Chomsky, he was talking about you know, student debt, at least in the States, being a mechanism, in his, in his view, of basically control. Yeah, you know, of the populace, and you know whether whether you think that's a conspiracy theory or not. Basically, the reality is, if you come, if the majority of the population to go to get an education are coming out with massive debt, yeah, they're not going to be engaging in lots of other, you know, exploration or revolution, potentially revolutionary activities or whatever. They're going to put their heads down, pay off their loans for the next however long it takes twenty years, twenty or so. years, <laughs> right? That's not uncommon. Uh, or pass it on to their kids, right? But you, you it's oh. sort of this modern-day debt peonage that you get trapped in. And I tend to side with his opinion that there's something intentional about the way the, the system is structured. It's certainly not benefiting the majority of the students. So no. who, who's mostly benefiting from that? The universities are worth billions of dollars, yeah. right? That And... and some people have said that our education system is designed to make workers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at, um, I've met some really, really uneducated doctors, and they just basically know the practice, right? right. If you come in with a runny nose, ask them these three questions, give them this pill, send them out the door. They're right. not going to ever uh, discover the cure to a new disease. They're not ever going to, you know, they're never digging deep enough. And you're going to have that with tradespeople. You're going to have that with highly educated people. But the education system is designed to have robots, factory workers, people to fill spots. Um, And I kind of sort of believe that that's true, that that's that's the design. You know, the bells go off at a certain time and you only spend so much time doing something at, you know, one thing at a time, right? We're going to do math for an hour because we know at your age group, you can't do it for more than an hour, right? Right. And so at work, you go there and you only work for two hours because we know you need a break. You have to pee, you have to get something to eat, you have to get a drink of water. Everything is designed around that. And that's how we bring our kids up, not to be thinkers, to mm-hmm. be do whatever the system tells them to do. Totally. And there, there's actually been a, it's interesting, the pendulum always swings back and forth. In education, there's been a real push, at least in the, the teacher schools now, to, to fight against the sort of industrial model of education where we package kids. You know, why, why is everyone in the same grade there? Because that's the year they were born, right? That's sort of an industrial <laughs> yeah. age thought that... 
you know, I'm stealing it from someone here, but you know, stamps you based on your date of birth, and that's you know, that's like a product. Like that's when you're born. This is yeah. how you're going to move forward. Best it's before f- date. Totally, it's a factory <laughs> model. When you know, everyone, it's obvious to everyone who's ever been in a school that kids in the same grade have vastly different capabilities, different right. interests, different potential. You know, different goals for their own lives. Why are we treating them all the same way yeah. um, by putting them in the same place and saying you have to learn these things at this time? And you're seeing a real push towards you know student-led uh, inquiry, um, letting the letting the students guide more of their own learning, that kind of thing. And I think there's a real truth to you know that's how kids learn. Kids are inquisitive. Kids like to explore, play, etc. Yeah. Um, but being a teacher myself, I do see the struggle to balance the reality of human nature. Where if you give someone too much freedom. You know, it's, you got to find that line, right? Because we're not, most of us aren't intrinsically motivated enough to get all our assignments done. You know, <laughs> just go to work because we feel like that's my human nature. We're going right. for the paycheck, right? Yeah. A lot of us are going for grades. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion about do we need grades? What, is, what do grades actually teach, right? Yeah. Um, if a kid fails an assignment and we move on, what are we teaching them? That didn't really matter. They didn't know that because we're moving on anyway, right? <laughs> right? So too bad. So yeah. there's a lot of um, impetus to re-examine these you know, beliefs are that underpin our education system. But I think you're right, the current model, and it's going to be hard to uproot. Yeah. Um, but the current model really is a factory one. And it, I think it puts people out there into the workforce. And the idea is that we're, we're equipping people to get jobs. Right. That's the goal. Yeah. You're supposed to be employed, be a contributing member of society. Maybe that just means go pay your taxes so we don't have to support <laughs> you. Um, but that's the idea. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, about education is from Abraham Heschel. He's a, a Jewish scholar and uh, mystic. He walked with uh, Martin Luther King and on Washington. Wow. And, you know, civil rights movement activist. And uh, he says, I'm maybe paraphrasing, but the, uh, the ancient Hebrews learned in order to revere, to be in awe. The, yeah. Gr- the Greeks learned in order to understand. Modern man or learns in order to use. And I think, I think postmodern man now, where we are, learns in order to consume. I mean, if you think about why yeah. we go to school, well, how many people go to be a doctor because they just love, you know, the study of the human body? There's probably a lot of people who do, but I think there's a lot of impetus for whatever you choose. What is this going to equip me to earn when I, when I graduate yeah. and enter the workforce? And what, by extension, does that allow me to do in my lifestyle, right? What can I consume? What kind of house can I buy? What kind of yeah. vacation can I have, et cetera? It's all based around the primary model, which is consumption, right? We live to relax, to commodify, to enjoy ourselves to a large degree. Do you think that's natural or do you think that's brought on by our culture? Like, is that driven by TV and consumerism and and massive marketing companies? Because I don't think human beings at our core are those type of people. We're, We're not designed to sit back and relax and... right. I'm I'm kind of of two minds. I think I think there is a definite impulse, and it's probably a survival thing. Where uh, you know someone someone defined man as the seeker of the greatest amount of uh, um, comfort for the least amount of effort, <laughs> which I think is true. You think of the man in the lazy boy chair, um, but there's a survival component to that too, right? You know, you're looking for uh, efficiency, optimization. How much? How many? Um, you know mollusks, whatever, how much food can I gather for the least output? Because I need to survive, right? right? But I think we've taken that to the nth degree now in our our tech-rich society that allows us to have everything at our fingertips all the time. Yeah. 
Um, and I think you're right. Advertising plays a huge role. Yeah. Uh, we are taught to want more, to be dissatisfied. Ad- the whole point of advertising is to convince us that we're dissatisfied with our current state of affairs and that we, right. you know, we're worth it to spend money on ourselves to improve something we didn't even know we were dissatisfied with. Yeah. So I think that's, I think they go hand in hand. I think they pray, pray or play off of or whatever you want to call it, uh, a natural part of human nature that was is probably a good thing. If we can find an easier way, yeah. we're going to try to find an easier way, and they're they're really digging deep into that. I, uh, I think it's called The Way of Man that I read a while ago, and it was talking about how, um, maybe it wasn't in that book. Either way, um, during uh, the Second World War, the rate of depression in Europe and suicide almost dropped off to nothing because they all had a reason to get out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. and to do something. Yeah. And I think people that don't find that reason to get out of bed and do something, they're they're looking for, you know, what gadget can I buy? You know, George Jetson that, oh, that probably dated me, that <laughs> I, I just want to be able to push a button and have my breakfast. Made. Right. Can we, can we do that? Right. Oh, we can? Oh, good. Then I want that. Absolutely. And, and, and I would say I'm 100% guilty uh, of thinking that way, but on uh, information. Um, I talked to you, I think, about, maybe we didn't talk about it, about Elon Musk and this new interface that he's got, that he wants the information from our computers and our phones. We can't absorb it fast enough. We're the we're the slow part or the, the weak chain. We're in the bottleneck, right? right. Yeah. And uh, he's developing an interface where it can go in faster. And right off the bat, I just went, oh, the Matrix. He's going to plug a hose in the back of our head and pump information. And I right away went, I'm in. I want to do it. I want to do it right now. If he was outside my door and said, we're going to drill a hole in the back of your skull, are you okay with this? Uh, yeah. Let's do this. Let's do this. I want to learn Kung Fu. I want to learn how to fly a helicopter and Kung Fu and how to build a cell phone and, and whatever else you can come up with. So I'm guilty of it too, just maybe not in the same way as other people. Right. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And, and you know, I'm not a neurologist or brain surgeon. Who, who knows what's actually involved in learning skills like that, right? Is yeah. there, a, is there a, and I believe there is a facet of learning, which is an inherently linked to our experience as embodied creatures, right? And I think, for, well, from day one, we learn through metaphor mediated through our bodies. So, you know, if we say, you know, that guy's a big deal or, you know, the, the whole concept of big, for example, is linked to our experience as children because yeah. bigger people are more important than us. Yeah. Or at least they're they're the important ones in our in our lives. They they're our caregivers, right? We associate warmth with goodness and nourishment because when we're held at our mother's right. breast to feed, we feel warmth, right? And we all those things by extension come to us through warmth. Yeah. So there's so many metaphors and understandings that that exist only because we're physical creatures. Right. That it's interesting to see where this you know, this pursuit of uh, artificial intelligence or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it um, will lead us because I think inherently there are certain things that will just, n- I'm skeptical we'll ever overcome in terms of just our, our physical realities. And I don't know that we want to overcome them. I think it's, you know, that's the wrong word. That I would never want to be just a disembodied brain Right, you don't, uh, you don't want to be the brain that's plugged into the yeah. top of an amazing robot that lasts for a thousand. Totally, years. and I don't even know why we're striving for that. I mean, I guess that's in a way it's some form of uh, the fountain of youth, but at what cost? You know, <clears throat> I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, I do remember Leon, Elon Musk saying that it's inevitable. 
AI is coming and he says, best case scenario, what he knows is that it wants to integrate with us. If it doesn't, we're just going right. to be pests that are getting right. in the way. So he said, best case scenario is that we get to integrate. So, you know, get on board with it. He went so far as to meet with presidents and world leaders saying, hey, everyone hold your AI guys back. Right. There was, um, I want to say it's in the States, I'm not 100% sure, but a, a group of university students that had put together a computer that was artificial intelligence. It could think for itself. Right. In a matter of a few hours, it had developed its own language that they couldn't understand, and they freaked out, and they shut. The, they had to right. unplug the computer. So that's scary. Yeah. Um, but in saying so, I'm in. If you, <laughs> if you can plug me into something, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm sure my wife, she's going to be mad at me. My kids right. are going to be like, Daddy, don't do it. But I'm in. Elon, plug me in. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's at least, I think, very honest human impulse, right? There's always that been that aspect of if we can, we will. And, you know, like yeah. we're going to, we're just going to advance our understanding and deal with the consequences later, right? Whatever those might be. You see it in AI, you see it in, you know, the whole arms race, you know, weapons development, uh, transportation. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. We figure it out. And then as we go, we realize the consequences and we go, crap, yeah. you know, what are we going to do now? And hopefully figure that out as we, down the road. But There was a, uh, an article on Radiolab. Uh, it's another podcast that I listened to. And they were talking about being able to study from the, um, what's the right word? When you make a baby. So when sperm meets Oh, egg. yeah. Conception. Conception to... Uh, so from conception to about three months, we don't really know much about what happens inside because there's no way to study it. So that's why they do test, to- test tube babies, right? Is they're trying to figure out what they do. And so for a long time, they'd only be able to get an embryo grow for about six to eight days, I think it was originally. And this doctor had figured out how to grow into 14. And they thought, this is amazing. We have seven more days of studying on this. And now we can study a 14-day-old embryo instead of a seven-day. And that should give us a whole bunch more information, which I think is fantastic. But he's like, when do we draw the line? Like, when does that become a person? And we shouldn't have it in a Petri dish anymore. When does that... When do we break that thing if it grows into a human being that it didn't have... It wasn't next to a mom, like you were saying earlier. Like, we've taken something out of that human being. Right. And I don't know what the answer was, but it scared him so bad that he said, I'll never go past 14 days. Right. That he had no desire to see what that turned into. Right. Well, I think that's, you know, maybe more rare than (coughs) I would would hope or (laughs) the impulse to actually pump the brakes and say, what are we actually doing here? What are we... What are the implications, right? Yeah. And there's there's good people doing good work like that all the time. 100%, Those yeah. are the questions, right? Maybe that there aren't, there may never be a clear answer to, but I would, you know, if we're erring on the side of caution, I think that's the right side to err on. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, going back to the whole thing uh, about, you know, just moving ahead regardless, you know, if we can, we're going to. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut, he writes a book, uh, Cat's Cradle, where he, that's... So he was in World War II, you know, prisoner okay. of war. Uh, he saw the fire. He lived through the firebombing of Dresden, where they just wiped out a whole city overnight. Um, and basically, in this book, Cat's Cradle, the scientists are developing a way to re-teach water molecules to be solid at room temperature, basically to be ice that is, you know, 66 degrees Celsius or whatever, right? So, yeah. or sorry, Fahrenheit. Um, and then once it comes into contact with other water, it will also teach that water 
to become solid, right? So you drop it into a pond, the whole pond freezes, but it's a sunny day out. And the idea being this is a military, you know, uh, application where you can put it into a swamp. Soldiers don't get foot rot, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Walk uh, across the top. Walk across the top, right? You know, you can attack someone across the moat, whatever. Yeah. Um, end of the book, spoiler alert, gets dropped in the Pacific Ocean. Now the whole ocean is solid at, you know, at uh, daytime temperatures. And the whole question is, why the hell are we doing this? Right. It's like, yeah, great. That's a, that's a fascinating, maybe theoretical question. Yeah. Like AI, why are we pursuing it? Yeah. Like, do we really want to find out what's the end game there? You have to have that why, right? Like that, yeah. that's what it is. And I think, um, you know, talking about war, there, there's a lot that comes out of war from a techno- technological standpoint but it's all based on evil. Right. I need to take over these people. They need to die. How are we going to do that? AI, cars, thermal imaging, all that stuff came out. Microwaves. All came out of war. Um, Oh, what's this stuff called? The uh, fertilizer, where they can take fertilizer out of the air. That was the... Nitrogen. Where they they killed all the Nazis with that gas. Yeah. The guy that produced that also produced the way to take nitrogen out of the air and fertilize. And that was, yeah, it was an agricultural based product. Yeah. Exactly. But that came out of one of the most horrific things that happened in war. So where do we say, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that? Like, I'm sure right now in South Korea, they're doing, North Korea, sorry, they're doing crazy, crazy stuff with um, CRISPR. I don't know if you know Mm, what that is. So it's genetic engineering basically they can go in and they can cut your dna so that you're no longer have cerebral palsy or um, whatever happens to be not normal with you they they can cut it out of your dna and Hmm. change it the problem is the the ripple effect right um every action has an equal and opposite reaction so when they do it to somebody usually something else happens to them and they don't always know what that's going to be right so they're they're doing all these tests now trying to figure out what they can and can't do to a human being can we can we get rid of cancer we just cut that out of their their dna um so much so now that they're realizing that it's better to do to a brand new human being or maybe even before it's born that you do the genetics inside the mom or and maybe even inside the egg before it's fertilized so that you can create the bright human being designer babies right, right? um uh, a north korean company com- couple can have a six foot seven tall basketball player um just if you cut and snip the genes the right, right. way um where are we going to draw the line on it? and what's it going to do is it going to make us last forever right do, do we want to last forever you know there's seven billion people on the planet now how much more can this hold before earth goes piss on the lot of you absolutely <laughs> I, i'm ending this so i agree with you wholeheartedly the why is so important and why do we keep digging into ai what what's it going to do for us in the long run right yeah well i think it's a great question that is not often enough taken seriously, right? It's, yeah. we, we prioritize the how, you know, science, Western science has given us the incredible ability to do certain things very well, right? To answer the how mechanism of, you know, so many different facets of nature um, that we, you know, were impossible, right? They're fantasies. Yeah. But I think it doesn't, it, it never addresses the why, almost ever, right? That's a moral component that comes in. That's science is essentially mute on. Science wasn't designed or conceived to answer those kinds of questions. Yeah. But it's sort of a moot point what we can do if we don't know why we're doing it, you know, or if we if we can't apply something, you know, that's that's the question we need to be starting with, right? Yeah. What's the application? What are the possible consequences? And we're the whole world's living the error of that, <laughs> right? You know, the consequence part. Yeah. I... I 
I would imagine whoever came up with AI first had a why um, that oh, drove yeah. them. And yeah. then someone else went, oh, I can make money off it. So that's their why. Oh, for sure. Right? And there, there's always, it always started somewhere. And you can't extrapolate all the way down the line. You don't know where you're going to. You don't know where no. it started. You know, I got no. beat up. So I wanted to build the biggest bomb. Absolutely. <laughs> when I had sticks, someone kicked my ass. So we yeah. got to build a bomb. Carry so a bigger stick, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to, uh, um, ignore the fact that you brought a whole bunch of books. Uh, so you're, um, not hobby, you're a ling- linguistic, you study language. Yeah, that's right. Back in, back in the day anyway. Um, and la- yeah, language, um, and it turns out, uh, that language and your, your belief about language and I think where language come from, comes from is linked to so many core aspects of being human uh you know like we were mentioning earlier about embodied metaphor how we come to understand what warmth is what it means all the rest um and i think also what you were saying about you know perspectives of who we know and how that shapes our own understanding of the world and i think we each only get to live one life literature is one of the biggest ways where we actually get to experience other perspectives that we would never we would never come into contact with we would never live those stories right um and think a lack of um, maybe immersing ourselves in story um, it's really it leads to leads to certain issues where you know if you can only see the world in one shade uh, you know if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail yeah. right if you can't imagine the world from perspective of a nail you've got some problems right because there's lots of nails out there yeah um, and yeah I've, so I've brought some some uh, stories that have been I would say uh, integral to how I've come to uh, understand different aspects of life. Um, I've learned, you know, so one of the books I brought, um, one of my favorite authors, J, um, Wendell Berry. Yeah. He's a, uh, farmer, poet, um, scholar in the States. And this book, uh, Jaber Crow, he writes about a small, um, small farming town, um, uh, back in, I think the main character was born sometime in the 1920s, 1930s, and he lives through this transformation that happens in rural America after the war, during and after the war, where farming becomes mechanized, and essentially you see all the small-scale farms that were really the backbone of the states, and you know so many countries, pre-industrial countries, just collapse. Right? It's either get big or get out. Yeah. And again, good impulse maybe to start with where we're trying to make things more efficient, more, uh, you know, increase our yield, feed the, feed the soldiers, et cetera. But the end result of that industrialization of agriculture is that we treat the land like the military treats human bodies, right? Mm. They're, they're, we are essentially turning the land into a pulp to produce a short-term gain, objective, whatever, right? Yeah. And it's very good at what it does, but it's a short-sighted solution. And in the story, the reason I bring it up is because it was really the first story I read that made me realize I could grieve for a time I'd never experienced personally myself. This time in the state's history where the vast majority of the population lived on small-scale farms, uh, in in tiny communities, and you knew your neighbors in a way you'd I think most of us maybe idealize, but don't anymore. Yeah. Not that there weren't there were lots of issues in this community too. He shows all of those, but uh, it was just a, a time, fifty, sixty years before I was even born. Yeah. A reality I couldn't even imagine now because it's it's largely been wiped out. Yeah. From at least our country, 
I'm from the state, so I say R. But um, I, and I think that's one of the powers of of story is that it allows us to remember, to grieve, to try and prevent things from happening in the future, yeah. to allow for us to conceive of possibilities that we didn't even know were, but maybe could be again. Right? Could we bring back what would small scale community look like in our modern, mostly urban existence where most of us don't really know that many neighbors. Right. And right? if I, if someone was breaking into my house, would my neighbors be able to identify the robber versus me? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if he's climbing through a window, that would give them a clue. But um, I think that's one piece of, you know, there's a collective forgetting that happens in society. Then if we don't read and if we don't cultivate that yeah. um, through fiction, nonfiction, whatever, there's something that's lost forever. Yeah. And you know, we, we're a literate society, so most of that happens through literature. Yeah. Um, but in oral, in oral societies, it was oral storytelling, mostly through the elders. Yeah. Um, and elders being around... You'd keep your elder around. If you had to pick between your elder or your newborn baby, most of the time, you had to pick the elder because they're the ones who knew, had the knowledge to get you through a time of drought, time of famine, right. whatever, right? That was valuable. Yeah. And I think... We we have a different relationship to understanding, to information, etc. Yeah, and uh, we've gained a lot through that, but we've also sacrificed a lot through that. Oh, you know what? I'm um, I get in this argument with friends of mine all the time, where they they harass me for not reading very much, and and quite honestly, I, I grew up not very well educated, not believing in the the value of reading. And not that I can't read, I can. I just don't find it a good way to get information into my body. And and really I'm looking for new information. That's probably what I've been missing is is the story of it. Mm. Um, the few times in my life where I spent a lot of time reading, it was just stories. And I remember them fondly. I remember all those stories. Like Stephen King, I loved reading. I liked those those kind of way. That guy's got to be some kind of broken in his head on <laughs> to come up with the stories that he does. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. But I, I really, really enjoyed those stories. And as you're talking about how you got to mourn for something that you were never part of, um, that's what we missed in TV and in movies. Right. And um, even the the Marvel stuff, I heard that they literally know how many seconds they got to go between jokes or between right. something big action be- keep us drawn into right. it. They've just figured out the human psyche so well that that's not really a story. It's impressive. I like it. I watch Iron Man and, and Thor and uh, the Hulk, and, and I enjoy that, but it's not the same feeling I got when I read Stephen King books or the Harry Potter right. books or something like that. Right. Well, there's a whole element to, uh, I think, modern-day storytelling. And, you know, movies, like you've mentioned, those are that's the modern-day I would say format for most of our, you know, culturally accessible, you know, proliferated, uh, maybe literature, whatever you want to call it, is we put it on the screen now. Of course, we have the technology; it's more yeah. entertaining. But like you've mentioned, a lot of it, I think, becomes sort of a mental cotton candy, right? Where yeah. it's sort of just this stimulate, stimulate me, right? Yeah. I need, and you're right; they've got formulas for, you know, how long do you go before uh, between explosions in, you know, in an action movie, right? You watch the Fast and Furious series, right? It's yeah. like the same formula repeated over and over again because we love cotton candy, yeah. right? We love we love cars, <laughs> cars, women, and explosions, right? So yeah. give us more of it. And I, I don't, not to say there's not a place for movies like that, uh, for that kind of thing, but I think if that's the only intake of story, yeah, you know, then we're well. For one, we've impoverished our understanding of maybe what story is, and and um, we're not 
it, it's sort of a limited diet, right? And yeah. what else are we taking in and what are we missing if we don't have those other perspectives? Um, Thomas King, uh, indigenous writer, he, uh, he, one of his quotes that stuck with me is, the truth about story is that it's all we are. Hmm. And I, I think that's so powerful. At first, I, you, know, you hear it, it's like, oh, that's a good line, but what does it really mean? That's what I'm thinking right now. Right. What does it really mean? <laughs> and I, the way I see it is, I think he's right. I think we are, we're not only our own story that we're living right now, but we are also the story of our ancestors. I'm Part of my story is the story of my parents, and right. is the story of their parents, and is the story of my children. Yeah. They will carry on, like when I'm gone, my story will remain. Yeah. And that's largely it. You know, I don't. I more care. I more care about the kind of story that my life is, right? Than what house my kids are inheriting and get to bicker over when I'm gone, right? <laughs> um, and I think that's part of what King is getting at when he says, "Story is all we are." Yeah. You know, we're ephemeral creatures. We're only here for a sunrise, basically, right? We're, right. It's um, so short in the scheme of things. Absolutely. We're part. We're an individual story. We're we're a family story, and I think we're part of a human story yeah and a story on this planet that continues to be told and we get to play one piece of it yeah. but I, you know i think the older i get to them it sort of scared me when i was younger thinking my story might vanish <laughs> and likely it's going to yeah but i find a real piece in that actually that we are part of a much bigger theater that's going on and that there's a real grace and i think uh yeah grace really mercy in fading out mm. you know we are small, and I think modern man has been able to perhaps feel bigger than we really are. Yeah. But, you know, when's the last time I looked up at the night sky and just contemplated my own, my own right? insignificance when's in terms of the scale? When's the last time you've been in, been in a city where you can actually see the night sky so Absolutely. that you can have that, what is going on in the universe right now, and compare that to the crappy little argument you had with your wife. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think it just gives us, gives us a perspective of where we are in the grand scheme of things. And there's a freedom knowing that, you know, yeah, these problems are real in my life, but look at all the rest of this, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's humbling when you think of it. Our planet is barely a speck in the universe. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> we're barely a speck on our planet. Absolutely. Uh, but... You're right. We we do have a role to play here. There's an old uh, Viking proverb that talks about um, uh, Vikings having two deaths. The one they have in battle, where they go to Valhalla. Uh, The second one being when people stop talking about you, Mm -hmm. when they forget Mm -hmm. your story. And so every Viking's dream is to to live forever in the story, right? Right. And And maybe that's part of human DNA is that we're just afraid that that's... When that's gone, it's gone. Like right. there's nothing left for us right. out there. People that don't know God or don't have a God that, you know, um, there's not the bigger why for them. There's not a bigger understanding of what life actually is for that uh, that their story is going to die very quickly. Like how, I don't know much about my great-grandfather. Right. Almost nothing. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? It's true. And uh, I think that he probably did some great things. I don't know what they are. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a challenge where uh you know, we we think of we think of our lives as significant. I think they are, but it's, you know, what are we really leaving behind us? Um what does it, you know, if we're thinking in terms of eternity, um and how our impact on eternity from our choices in this life, our beliefs in this life. Um to be honest, sometimes I think 
I don't know which is more terrifying if there's an afterlife, if there is not. You know, if you <laughs> contemplate being alive for eternity, I can't even begin to comprehend that. Yeah. Um, but I do find comfort in thinking that that I I this form of consciousness that we have as humans, I think is is probably just one form of consciousness. You know, this experience that I'm an individual separated from every other person on this planet. Yeah. Um, that I may experience another kind of consciousness when I die, and I hope it is one that's more connected to other people and hopefully other creatures, I think, you know, yeah. and, and God... More of an avatar kind more, of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my little feelies go out and connect to someone, someone else's. But um, where it's it's more... It's bigger than me, right? And I think that's part of the truth of the Christian story is that it, it is bigger than us, yeah. you know? And I think if if we can experience that in a different way that we don't in this life, um, and that takes on a whole other meaning too. Yeah. You know, what is heaven if I'm still just isolated as a in the same way that I feel isolated so often as a human being? Uh, in this body, that's a powerful so. question. To what if it is like that? Because we don't really know, right? We right. have stories. We have what our pastors tell us, but um, nobody's really been and back and can say this is what's going to happen on the other side. Right? And there's some fear, obviously, involved in that. Right. <clears throat> I think for me, the going back to the why in the Viking story is that. If you're doing something to impact people around you, I think it was Socrates that said, be ashamed to live a life that you haven't won something for humanity or Mm, something to that effect. And I think that should be, or that is my purpose, is try to leave a a better story. Try to be remembered longer. If you're remembered longer, you've done more Mm. while you're here. You know, if my kids want to tell their grandkids about what I did, um, I think that's powerful. There's something where you've made a a significant change in the world if if your goal is that. Right. I think so. And I think, you know, you mentioned your great-grandfather. You have no idea what life he lived. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the fact that you're here is a testament to the story he lived, whether or not right. we know anything about who he was or what he did. Yeah. And I think there's a beauty in that too. My great-grandchildren may know my name or they may not, Yeah. but their lives will be hopefully materially better um, <laughs> for the story that I that my life is, yeah. right, and becomes. Um, but I think it's, you know, so much of it is out of our hands and the stories we tell and the legacies we leave, we can influence them, but we do step off the stage at a certain point. And yeah. I think that keeps us in a healthy perspective of, you know, I get this life and it's important, but at some point I get to step off too. Yeah. And there's a relief in that, I think. I, I don't think have so. to, I don't have to save the world, you know? I have to make it a bit better if I can in my sphere. Right. But it's not all riding on me. Right. right? I think guys like Elon Musk feel like it's all right. Yeah. Them. It's their yeah. job. Right. Fix the if they don't colonize Mars, we're screwed, right? Right. And we're going to blame you, Elon. <laughs> the uh, I listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson, and I love his stuff. He, he really helps me think through things really, really well. And he talks about, um, he doesn't understand how everybody isn't in a full-on panic or depression or anxiety right. because we're an infinite creature, right? We know we're going to die. Right. Some of us even know how we're going to die, right? When I 
dog gets cancer, he doesn't know that cancer's killing him. He right. just doesn't know that he feel, or he knows that he doesn't feel well. Right. Where we know someone come to us and say, "Oh, you got this. You got six months." Right. Even if we don't get that, whatever disease it is, we know when we're eighty-five years old, say, as a Canadian average, right. we're going to die. Right. And and what does that mean? And and where do we go? And <clears throat> I get it. I get why. People get anxious and depressed and, you know, fearful all the time or uh, was it called agoraphobia? They can't leave their house right. because they just don't know when it's going to come. And yep. there's other people like Vikings and explorers and Elon Musk that just go out there and just do everything they possibly can, um, hoping for a better life, hoping to change somebody. Um, I, I like that. I, 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 I don't suffer from depression or anxiety, um, not in a big way. I think everyone gets depressed and anxious at times. Right. Um, uh, I, I was going to tell a story about why I was so anxious today, um, but I'll I'll save it for a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, the I don't know. People focus on the wrong things. I think if you're focusing on positive and and helping other people and doing better in your own life, then those those go away. The the anxiousness, the depression, the right. anxiety for most. Well, there's a again I'm paraphrasing, but it um, quote. It's what you know, what you dwell on that you cre- that you create, right? So what we think about, what we focus on, what we give our energy to, that's what we end up living out. That's <clears> what we end up pursuing, you know, contemplating, playing with. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? And obviously, Elon Musk has you know it's, sort of a that's the secret, right? Right. You, you just say it. The the actual religion, the secret. They're just like, well, if you say it enough, it's gonna exactly happen. it'll yeah. come true. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think you're right. If we, and if we direct our efforts in, and we believe that these things are possible, that these solutions are possible to some of the, you know, catastrophic problems we're facing, yeah. that's the only hope of any kind of solution, right? If, yeah. we, if we throw in the towel and before we even start, there's your conclusion, right? Right. We've decided it's not possible, therefore it's not possible. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know, some of the grand scale solutions, going back to Wendell Berry, he says the, there's... There's no such thing as global. There's only local. And there's only local solutions to local problems. And I think that's true. We're finite creatures bound to certain places and certain times. Yeah. And the world exists, but for, for none of us is it, a, is it a really a real place that we can even contemplate or meaningfully right. impact. But if all of us approach our singular place and community and just focus on that, that does have a global impact. Yeah. But I think some of the wide-ranging solutions like Elon Musk, Mars, etc., I feel like maybe are missing the mark of what we actually need to be focusing on. I think so many of the issues we have now are, fo- are issues of scale. We've created these massive problems with stripped scale and limitation from the table, and we can implement things across the globe. Uh, what kind of problems does that create? What happens if I can, I can create a nuclear bomb because I don't, really care where the nuclear waste goes as long as it goes, doesn't go in my backyard. Yep. But if the if this country is the size of the United States, no problem. I have lots of places that aren't in my backyard. I can put it in Idaho. I can put it in Nevada, <laughs> wherever. doesn't matter. I'm making decisions from Washington, D.C. Yeah. But if my community is Washington, D.C., I'm not going to create a nuclear bomb, hopefully, yeah. because i got to bury the nuclear waste or from a reactor or whatever in my backyard. And right. that's my kids. That's my family. So I think when we get too grandiose in our ambitions we create problems on a scale that we can't meaningfully address. Well, and I think that's what Elon Musk is kind of 
I think he, and I don't know, I'm making this up, but he, he, he's, he sees all that. Like we've now buried so much crap in our backyard. We can't go in our backyard anymore. So we got to go to Mars or whatever planet or outer space. Maybe he'll build a big spaceship that we can live on that. Maybe he's the, um, the actual genius that he sees the problem a hundred years in advance and he's the one jumping on it right now. And in a hundred years from now, we're like, Oh, sure. Glad Elon did that because we buggered ourselves. And then there's the other side of it where all the people that are creating the problems are only thinking about their backyard and nobody else's, right? right? They're going to bury it everywhere they can. As long as they got their one little tree inside their fence, they're okay. Right. Jordan Peterson talks about um, decision-making skills and, and the, the way he says it, you have to do what's right for you first. But not only right for you, it has to be right for you and your family. And not only you and your family, but you, your family, your community, and the world. But not only for all those groups, but it has to be good today, tomorrow, and in 10 years, and in 100 years. Right. I love that Um definition he put on decision-making skills. So if you really dug into that in your own life, what would that do? That you were thinking about 10 generations ahead of you. What is my decision today going to do for those generations? Would we have nuclear waste? I don't think we would. Right. Would we have polluted oceans? No, we wouldn't. Right. Right. We would have put the, um, the planet and our future generations ahead of everything. I had a podcast guest, uh, Carla Mayfield, on here a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about, I think it was in Italy or in uh, Greece, and she was talking about they would literally cut down the trees and um, mill them and prep them and let them cure for their great-grandchildren. And it would sit there. They would do the same thing with wine and some fermented food and stuff like that, that it was everything that they did wasn't for them. It was for somebody else. Right. I think there's a lot of power in that. Like, do we ever think past of where uh, we got my kid on the camera <laughs> taking pictures? Wow, that was really good on uh, me doing that. Now he's on the other side. Um, do we ever think past of our own lives? Right. Ever, right? Like, you're a dad, you got three kids, and they're very, very little. I'm sure right now you're thinking really hard about what's happening in their lives, where they're going to go to school, what they're going to eat, what kind of friends they're going to have, who they're going to marry, all that kind of stuff. But that sort of goes on the back burner when, you know, uh, the mortgage is coming due and, you know, I got laid off from my job, so I got to find a new teaching job. You know, there's all these things that get in the way from us thinking about the future of our kids right. and our great kids. Absolutely. Well, I, th- I think the... Becoming a parent, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, is a moment unlike any other because we realize that our decisions have to have that scope that they haven't before. Right. Right? Before I became a dad, it didn't really matter what yeah. I did with my time so much. Right, It mattered, but I didn't think it mattered the same way I do now. Right. Uh, what, what decisions I make, how I treat my body, how I treat my wife, you know, the legacy I leave for my kids that's shaping the reality for someone else. And that's creating a world beyond me right. that I'm now responsible for. If yeah. I want to be selfish and it's just me, who cares? Right. Right. I mean, people care, <laughs> but there's not, there's not as much riding on it. Right. Right. And I think when we expand the conversation, like you're saying, Jordan Peterson is asking us to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe he says this as well, or, um, but by extension, we're including not just other people and communities, but non-human communities too. And, not, I'm about to say that the question is not just will this benefit the community and will it safeguard you know, my children and their children, et cetera, but 
how about the, you know, the other non-human creatures? And not just f- so I can go hunt and my kids can go hunt and all the rest and they'll have fish to eat, but yeah. just for the sake of those things as well. I think the wor- a world that has enough nature that we can subsist on is great, but it's missing the mark. God created a, a wild abundance, super abundance of t- kind and type of creature right. far beyond anything that yeah. we could ever need for our utilitarian survival. And I think we lose so much when we, if we're only thinking about the human community and I'm sure Peterson would, would probably agree with, with all the rest of that, you know, the environmental look at it too, but just the wonder, the fact that God didn't have to create, you know, 99.9% of the things he did. Right. And he did it anyway, put him out there and half of it, or probably 99.9% of it, we're never even going to discover. Right. But it's out there and he's enjoying it, you know? I just listened to a podcast where uh, this guy was a biologist. He goes around the world looking for extinct animals. So there's a, I can't remember what it's called now, in uh, Australia, this, this animal that went extinct in the 50s. Uh, they haven't seen one since, and now there's a bunch of sightings of them. He's, mm. So he's going to go find them. Right. But he was saying that we discover, I'm trying to remember what the number is, it's somewhere high, like 20 new mammals um, uh, every year. Hmm. Like, still. Right, like, right. We, we've covered a lot of the planet. Right. And that's big stuff. How right. many um, germs haven't we discovered? Oh, how, absolutely. How many microbes haven't we yeah. discovered? Well, we can only identify, I think, something like 1% of the, the microbe variety that lives in, say, a teaspoon of soil. Because <laughs> most of it won't survive in a culture that we try to recreate to actually study, uh, right? Yeah. So we know that there's this, this super abundance in in nature, but most of it's unobservable to us, yeah. which I think is brilliant. I do you too. I, I love the fact that we don't know. I love the fact that there's always going to be something more to study and learn and figure out. And um, I remember listening to a documentary about a guy that was studying just venomous um, uh, cr- uh, creatures, uh, snakes and spiders and reptiles and stuff like that, because he believed all the cure for disease was in the, mm. the proteins of, right. the, of the venoms. And I'm like, that's brilliant. I can't believe that you've decided to take like what we think is going to be the worst thing for us. How do you turn that into something good for human beings? Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, and you can spend a lifetime studying just that. You probably just <laughs> one snake's these. venom, right? <laughs> right. It's it's infinite, you know, for all practical purposes. I think we know less about the the depths of our ocean than we do about intergalactic space, space right? We do, you, yeah. It's not observable to us by the same means that space is. Yeah. Same with the, you know, the interior of the Amazon jungle, yeah. all the rest, right? The microbe world. Yeah. yeah, subatomic world. All right. I want to get back to literature a little yeah, bit more. Absolutely. I, I had an idea as we're talking here that maybe for the next time you come on the podcast, you're going to give me a book to read and then we'll discuss. Oh, I like it. But I, I like, like that idea. Fun. It'll be forced me to start reading again because I think I really need to. Um, one of the things that uh, you were reading at our soundcheck was poetry. Yep. And uh, I remember being a big fan of poetry in high school, but you don't really get... Um, Rewards from girls or your friends for being uh, a big fan of poetry when you're a 14 or 15 year old. Yeah, probably boy. not. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the friends I hang out with. I'm sure there's lots of boys out there that reward their friends for reading. <laughs> hey, baseball is a form of poetry, right? Being a jock. Come on. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so, what was the, the story you were reading for the sound check? Yeah, so this is uh, again Wendell Berry. Uh, it's a poem. Called, so, he's got a series of poems he attributes to the mad farmer, this character who he doesn't. He won't say that is him, but it's sort of this this uh, character of his who's uh, very contrary, pushes back against a lot of um, maybe mainstream wisdom or accepted 
accepted norms. So this one um, it's called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. It's a little bit longer, uh, okay. but uh, I think Let's it's read worth it. the read. Yeah. yeah. So love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbor and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to do, when they want you to die for profit, they'll let you know. So, friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the, in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicals, politicos can predict the movements of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Hmm. <clears throat> when, um, when, when was this written? You know, I don't know. Yeah, this is a collection of his poems from over, over decades. Okay. So this one, it's probably at least two decades old, I would guess. Um, it t- actually touches on a lot of things we've talked about earlier. I you was going to say, yeah, planting chill, you know, planting trees that you're not going to even see grow tall. Yeah, you know, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Yeah, um, I think it's it's really speaking to well. There's an impulse to explain what poetry is about, which I don't really like, but <laughs> you know, I think it means it means something to different to each person who reads it. But what what I really enjoy is that he's he's really subverting a lot of the things we take for conventional wisdom or how we live our lives. Why would I plan something if I can't benefit from it? Right. You know, why would I, why would I uh, not want the vacation? Why would I not want the annual raise? Right. right? Uh, you know, a lot of what he rails against is sort of this, this uh, society that we've become complacent in, in just, you know, we can be bought, we yeah. can be advertised to, we can be sold on things we don't need. Um, and we're not commodities. Humans aren't commodities, and we weren't meant to be that, live that way. Right. And one of the things that's really changed my whole life, actually, is is gardening. And I started gardening probably when I was just when I was married, uh, 2012. And I think what we we talked about that sense of feeling tiny. Yeah. The first time I planted a seed in the ground and it grew, 
you know, from, from essentially a speck of dust, yeah. you know, something you can barely see to something I could eat. Well, if, if there's, if that's not magic, I don't know what is, you know, <laughs> we have an explanation for how it happens, Yeah. but I think that's one of the, the trappings of, you know, what we've believed science can answer for us. So I can explain the, the mechanics of it, but how is that not a miracle? That, that I was just going to use that word was miracle. And I feel the same thing about childbirth and everything that we create as humans. When we plan something, when we care for something, when we grow something, it it's literally feels like a miracle. I remember seeing lots of births, TV, health class, um, all that stuff, and it meant nothing to me. And then I saw the birth of my daughter, and it meant a world of difference. That was my first child, and I remember seeing her. Uh, it was C-section. I'm not going to get too gory, but coming <laughs> out of my wife. Right. And the minute I saw her, it was like, it's better than a first kiss. It's better than oh, yeah. the first time you fall in love. Like You're just like... I cannot believe I made that. Absolutely. And there's this doctor yanking her out and taking her over and sucking the the goo out of her mouth and all that stuff. Um, it, it, it was so powerful. I, I just don't get how people don't believe in miracles if they've seen a child born. Like, you can just blow it off like, oh, it's just natural. Right. Well, if you can explain it, then it must not be miraculous, right? I right. Think that, that's this... <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a fallacy we believe without realizing it, right? Yeah. If... Uh, you know, dark matter and dark energies. The known universe is only about 4% of what we can actually observe. The other 96% is undetectable to us, but we know it has to exist. Right. Otherwise, it would basically implode. Yeah. But it's, it's almost like as soon as we name it dark matter or dark energy, okay, we can't really explain it, but at least we know what it's called. <laughs> so it it's a, really not that mind-blowing, right? Yeah. Okay, dark matter, that's weird, whatever. Yeah. That should blow our minds, right? Having a, having a child, that should blow our minds. Right. Um. But I think it can just become every day. The um, I think you're right that that we we get used to stuff and we don't think it's a miracle. It should still feel like a miracle. I think people that don't are missing out something in life, and maybe they're missing something in their brain, their head, their chemistry. I don't know because I don't know how you can be around. Well, I do. You have a teenager and changes your view a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was a miracle. I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah. almost like a punishment some days. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I really true. I think it's a greater miracle when we understand it. The the childbirth, I didn't really understand, how, and I probably still don't. I couldn't tell someone from beginning to end how a baby's, the basics of how a baby's right. born, but I don't really understand it. The people that do and they can explain it and make me understand it, that's the real miracle, right? I remember hearing a definition of science, and I think, I want to say it's like from 1890 or uh, maybe 1880 out of the Webster Dictionary, and it was the study of God's ways. That mm. was the definition right. of science, right? That everything we we're doing, we we're trying to figure out why God created babies this way and why the trees grow and how they communicate, like all that stuff that that's right. what it was. And we've, we look at it very differently now, right? It's just like, oh, we understand that that part, or we think we understand it until the new thing comes out. Then, like, oh, well, I didn't know it did that too. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm. I don't know. I think humanity maybe too much. Uh, this is going to be so hypocritical. Too much information coming in, staying too busy. All the stuff that I do, it makes makes us not see the miracles anymore. Yeah. Well, I think if we slow down, we actually enrich our lives in so many ways. But it's so hard to do, right? Yeah. And, and I. I fail at that every day, right? <laughs> you come home, you've got, you've got this miraculous 
child in your house, yeah. right? And what's more interesting to me, going online and checking my email, you know, <laughs> seeing what the stock market's doing, right? Yeah. Uh, and obviously, there's things you have to do, practical considerations, but we can let those things consume right. us. And I think there's so much noise. And I actually just learned today that the word noise comes from the root word that nausea also comes from. Mm. And I think there's a lot of truth <laughs> to that. There's a lot of noise in our lives that we think in some ways going to enrich or matter or whatever. And it you know, just, just creates the sickness, right? <laughs> exactly. And how do we how do we slow down and, and quiet ourselves to open us up to actually hear those things that matter? Right. Yeah. Gardening for me is one uh, like we like I mentioned, which just it feels to me like an act of worship. It's some it's a enterprise, well, that's the wrong word. It's a <laughs> It's just this this thing that I I don't fathom even in the slightest. Yeah. And to me, being in a state of uh, bafflement, that's worship. You know, it's yeah. like this is bigger than me. You do are bigger than me. Do you have the desire to dig in and figure it out? Like, how does that seed turn into a carrot? Like, is that part of who you are? Right. Is, is that one thing that you're just going, well, you know what? I don't care. Right. I'm just going to be impressed with it every day. Right. You know, I think there's a certain level that that's very, that is interesting to me, but it's almost like it's the wrong question for me to pursue. It's like yeah. what, what's really, what really gets me, like the hook that draws me in is just that, that sense of wonder that I feel. And so there, yeah. there, Actually, that is nurtured too by the more I learn about how it actually works, the more I realize I don't know. And that's even <laughs> more mind blowing, right? Yeah. So I do appreciate learning how things like that function, but I think that's not what gets me there or keeps me there, right? right? It yeah. enriches the understanding, but it's not why I do it. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I remember, on, I think it was on Sunday, when you mentioned about having a garden, and, and we looked at it in depth. Uh, so I went so far as to, and I don't remember all the numbers are now, we were planning on an indoor garden. So um, I do spray foam for a living. That's my regular job. We have a way to box off our basement and create an actual greenhouse inside, lights, moisture, all that kind of stuff, without wrecking my house, right. uh, without rotting it from the inside out. So I started looking at, well... How many carrots do we need per week? So if I plant uh, six good carrots on this day, then when am I going to get those those carrots? Um, and so I know I have whatever it is. I try to remember. It's like 130 days to get a full-size carrot out. So then every six days, I need to plant six more carrots, and then that gets me carrots. And I do the same thing with salad, right. with lettuce. And lettuce is a little bit different because you can just cut some of the lettuce off and it'll just keep growing and right. growing as long as you keep it in there. So I had this, not a spreadsheet, but a notebook all put together and a plan and like, we should do this. And then my wife found a place that delivered fruit and vegetables. <laughs> and that, that, that was the end of it. Right. But I was like so excited to be, I don't know, a farmer. That, you'd be a farmer, right? It's yeah. just, you've got an indoor farm now. Right. But I was looking at where do you get the soil? What's the right soil to get? If it, is there a special soil for lettuce? That right. It needs to be better than carrots. Like, right. I had a little garden in my backyard when the kids were little, um, let them eat the peas and pull the carrots and they loved it. They thought it was great, but it was tiny and it's good for a couple of weeks. It's probably more of a pain in the ass than it was right. <laughs> practical, but uh, yeah, I, I love the thought of gardening. Absolutely. I think, and what I've discovered gardening too is there's a carrot I eat from my own garden it is a world apart from a carrot that I buy from the store. Maybe they're similar in nutritional value depending on how fresh that carrot from the store is. It could be, likely it's not going to be, Yeah. but my, I actually have a relationship with the carrot that I grew. And it maybe sounds a little bit like strange to say that, but I, I planted that when it was 
a seed you could barely even see. Right. Right. So there's so many things that I've grown that I haven't eaten myself that I would grow again knowing I wasn't going to be the one to benefit or my family wasn't going to benefit. I'm going to give it away just for the whole process of growing it. Right. And it's like the end re- the, the purpose isn't even to consume it. Yeah. You know, now I need to survive. <laughs> and if I was a, if that was my primary way of surviving, I'm, I'm of course I'm going to eat that carrot. Yeah. But um, it's just a different a different I think way of being in the world when a we can't meet all our needs just through purchasing, just through consuming from another industry that does that for us. If right. we're producing something that we need, um, and we're in, our household is in some way productive, that's a different way of being in the world as well. I agree, yeah. The, I like what you said about uh, connection to the food because I think that's what's missing. My wife's holistic nutritionist. She deals with sick people um, every day or unhealthy people every day. Um, and a big part of that, she said, is there's no connection to food anymore, right. right? You go to the store, you pick up the bag of carrots. Am I going to get the organic? Am I going to get the, the regular carrots? And, um, you know, which one tastes better? There, there's no real connection. You've... you've Lots of people have never met a right. farmer or been on a farm. Right. Or well, it becomes like another consumer option. Do I want the purple carrot because it's kind of eccentric? Do I, you know, <laughs> is this organic? What does that mean to me, right? But yeah. it's a consumer choice, right. right, rather than... And I got hooked on the purple carrots. They tasted better for a while. Right. Um, I'm going so far now is I'm not allowed to have an indoor uh, garden because we need actually a pretty big one just to feed our family to get everything, yeah. all year round stuff. So it wasn't feasible to do that but i believe in the connection to food we've had a local farmer out here on the podcast wayne uh hansen from uh your local ranch and talking about going to meet your the guy that grows your beef go meet the cow yeah go meet the pig go meet the chickens go watch them lay eggs go pick up the eggs you know there there there's there's ways of getting connected to your food without Mm -hmm. having to be a rancher or a farmer just getting out on weekends and doing that stuff I did my Pell course this weekend, so that's your firearm safety course, and uh, with the goal of hunting this year. Um, so I'll do my hunter safety course here, and I've got a bunch of friends that are hunters going to take me out in the fall. I'm super excited. I'm scared out of my pants. First time? Uh, yeah, I've yeah. never, I've never, well, I've shot gophers when I was a kid right. with uh, slingshot and marbles and BB guns and right. too, but I've never hunted, right. hunted. And so uh, I watch videos on them gutting deers and I'm like just trying to get myself used to like what I'm going to see. And, you know, of course not, you can't do anything with the smell or, or anything like that, right. but I'm trying to prep myself for this because I want to do it so bad. I want to be connected to my food way more than, than what I have been. Run down to Walmart, grab a plastic tray full of meat, um, that, that's not a connection, you know. Most people don't even cook their food anymore. Right. It's warmed up in a microwave. Just even preparing the vegetables and the meat and salting it and marinating. Marinating isn't preparing for your great-grandchildren's, but it's preparing something that you have to look forward to, right? Yeah. Um, that brings me to the thought about um, sacrifice. So uh, Jordan, again, I know I talk about him too much, but he's talking about sacrifice. And all sacrifice is giving up something today for future you. And I'm trying to find a good way to describe it to my kids in a way that they understand the benefits. I don't think 10, 12, 14-year-olds are meant to understand sacrifice mm. yet, or I'm not very good at explaining it. Right. But that's essentially what we've been talking about all night is people sacrificing for somebody else. Yeah, well, I think it's a question, too, of sacrifice is a question of situating yourself in the world, right? Do Who's the most important 
person in my life? Is it me? Because if so, then I'm going to keep that bowl for myself, right? I'm going right. to keep whatever, that, my tithe, my money, I'm going to keep that paycheck. Um, but does giving away and sacrificing something, whether it be a, a physical sacrifice or, you know, sacrifice time, energy, whatever, does that in some way enrich me and situate me differently and enrich the people around me and situate us differently yeah. than if I hadn't made that? And I think, you know, tithing over the years, especially when I feel like I can't afford to, right, is one of the best things I can actually do for myself because, A, it frees me from this illusion that I can control everything, that right. I can control all my finances, I can, that I can uh, actually save myself. And B, it makes me reliant on God, on other people. On There's this measure of faith that I'm giving this away, not knowing if it's coming back, yeah. not knowing if it's going to be multiplied or if my car is going to break down or whatever. I'm giving it anyway. Right. Right. And that actually enlarges my soul, I think, and, and makes me a more genuine person because I need to rely on other people. Yeah. I think one of the lies we've been sold and wolfed down very happily uh, is that we can and should be independent. What does independent actually mean? It means isolated, right? It means depressed, right. cut off. That's what we do to prisoners. Absolutely. <laughs> but if I can be financially independent, I don't need to rely on anyone else, etc. That's yeah. all a lie. We all rely on things. I'm breathing oxygen. I didn't create that. Right. Every fundamentally, we are incapable of taking care of ourselves. Yeah. Your point about sacrifice, I think I think we embody the need to sacrifice because we it's this idea that there's this bigger thing going on that we need to release to. Right. Right. So I don't know when we come to how we how we come to understand <laughs> that or what, but I heard um uh, Jordan tell a story. It's, it's a story about the mammoth. So uh, imagine a caveman back in the day, and he kills a mammoth. He's not eating a mammoth. He's got no way to store a mammoth. You know, he might be able to smoke and make it last for two or three days, but for the most part, that mammoth is ninety-five percent wasted, unless he gives it to a few right. people. Now all of a sudden, he's fed. 50 more people. And the next time he doesn't have the ability to kill a mammoth, maybe someone else will share a mammoth with him. Um, And then then how much longevity does he get from giving away what he gave away? And that's really the way we need to think about things that, Mm, yeah, we can hoard um, uh, lots. So, you you know, Donald Trump, I don't dislike him or or anything, but, you know, he's got a billion dollars in the bank, maybe more. I don't know whatever it is. What's the point? Like, why... What are you going to do after you get $10 million? Right. Like how many private jets can you own in hotels? I'm not against it. I'm a capitalist at heart. I want people to be able to make money, and but not for the same reason I think Donald Trump does. Right. I want to do it so that I can do bigger, better, greater things. And maybe if I had a billion dollars in the bank, I'd be Donald Trump. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't have a billion dollars. But I think that... I don't even know where I was going with this. The the sacrifice thing. That right. when, when is it... It's always better. There's always going to be something in the future for you um, if you sacrifice. Uh, it's just the way nature has worked. The earth has worked. That Before there was human beings on the planet, everything sacrifices for something else, right? A tree mm-hmm. dies and becomes fertilizer for a plant, right? Uh, when a bear eats a fish and takes a dump, the, the DNA goes into the trees. Like, they're being fed by the waste of the bear. Like, all that stuff, we know that that's true, yet there's people that just want to hoard and keep right. hold of themselves. Well, I think it's this, again, this thing that we, this perspective, or I think lie, that we 
it's easy to believe and it's sort of self-aggrandizing. It feels good to believe that A, I can control all that and that B, it's going to make me somehow bigger, better, more capable, more uh, the winning S, the most tremendous, you know, going yeah, back to the yeah. Donald Trump thing. Uh, I just <laughs> finished listening to an audiobook on El Chapo, the Mexican drug lord. Yeah. And he was ranked, I think, the 701st most wealthy person in the world. 700th down the list. Yeah. So Does that include the Middle East? Oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but like individual, right? So he's number 701 yeah. in the world. And he's on the run from the police and the DEA all the time. I'm thinking, what's the purpose of that wealth? Right. You know, he's living in jail right now. Right. So it's a, there, there's this tendency to celebrate the number or whatever. It's some kind of accomplishment. Well, it means you're a fugitive, right? Or yeah. for Donald Trump, like what, what do you sacrifice to get there? Yeah. Right. What are the compromises do we, do we make? Yeah. Exactly. Right. What part of our our souls are we selling to hit a number? Like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. I, I have I have financial goals that I go after. I think everyone needs to have financial right. goals. It's not in the billion dollar range. Right. Um, in fact, I want to downsize as I get older. Everyone on the podcast that listens has heard what my retirement plan is. Um, I want to live in a dirt floor hut in Belize, pick fruit, go fishing, plant a garden. I just added that tonight, but it was brilliant. <laughs> it was uh, picking fruit and going fishing. That that's how I don't need a bigger house. I don't need right. a nicer truck or you know none of that stuff right. is that important to me. If I could live down in Belize and be wealthy enough to spend the rest of my days in paradise helping people, um, we had a guy on the podcast not too long ago. He wants to go down there and start a martial arts school and just get back to the community. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. Whatever you have to give, give. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, is our story just about us or is it about something more than that, right? Yeah. And uh, if, you're, if your financial goals are serving you rather than you serving them, I think that's the question, right? And I've yeah. struggled with that, you know? It's like, am I doing this so I'll feel better about myself, right? <laughs> more of a man, right? And, yeah. you know, I fall, I fall to that trap for sure, right? It's like we equate ourselves to some degree with our paycheck, right? We can, right. We can fall into that. But it's the question of, you know, what's the actual result? What's the purpose? And trying to stay true to that. Yeah. Not always easy. I don't think enough people, so I say it in business all the time. I'm manager of a fairly large company and, and we, we talk about if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Right. I think that's true personally too. Like, what are you setting those goals to your financial goals? If any, I don't think most people have any financial goals. Well, I'm just going to work hard. Good for you. Where does that end up, right? Like, what do you actually need in the bank to do what you want to do or to give what you want to give? Maybe that's a better way of wording it. Right. Are we being proactive or reactive, really, right? Are we setting a goal and trying to hit it, or are we... Right, Hope, hoping for the best, and right. that just sort of works out. My my dad used to say, "Shit in one hand, wish in the other. See which one fills up first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but that that's what I think. What most people go through life is that they're they're just wishing for something to happen without an actual plan in place to get there. No no set goal. Absolutely, I've definitely yeah feel like I'm sleepwalking sometimes and have to wait. You know, throw wet water, you know, cold water on my face to yeah yeah wake myself up that way sometimes. Yeah. Okay, so we're an hour and twenty five minutes in. I want to um, I want to set up our next podcast. Sure. Because uh, so let's talk about a few of the other books that you brought in and uh, sort of the, why you brought them. Yeah. Well, I um, got it's hard to choose. Yeah. Um, I think there's maybe different different things I've learned from different books I've read. Uh, I'll just start. So the one on the top of the pile is 1984, George Orwell. Yeah. Um, dystopian 
at the time he wrote it, 1948, it was this dystopian futuristic society, Big Brother, the term Big Brother comes from that book, yeah. the state, you know, the police state monitoring um, the civilians and keeping them, it's thought control, right? Tell them what to think, they think it. Uh, we're at war with this nation, now we're no longer we're at war with this nation. We've never been at war with that other nation. And you have to believe it, yeah. or you basically vanish, right? Okay. <laughs> um, and a lot of people think that by writing that book, he prevented that possibility from ever happening because it's the idea, if, if we can imagine it and live it in that way, then we can avoid it because we know it's a possibility. Okay. And so I think that's one function that literature serves. In a way, it's sort of the, a function, modern-day form of prophecy, right? This is where we could end up. Right. What do we have to do not to get there? <sighs> that's powerful to yeah. think about that. Yeah, and I think you know, sort of the counter uh, point to 1984 in a lot of ways was uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where instead of overt totalitarian control, which is 1984, it's control of the population through well, g- genetic selection yeah. and uh, entertainment. Yeah. And you don't need to overtly control the population if you just give them enough things to entertain themselves. Take drugs, mm. go to the movies, they call it the feelies, yeah. um, <laughs> and they will control themselves. And I think of the two, we're probably living some kind of hybrid. Yeah. But if I can go home and watch Netflix every night, and that's all I do for the rest of my life, I love Netflix. <laughs> if that's my only goal, the, no one's got to worry about me. Right. Right? The government, no one has to worry about me. Corporate interest doesn't matter. I'm bought and paid for. Right? right. And I've done that myself. Yeah. So 1984 speaks to, I think, some of the dystopian. I love dystopian fiction because I think it's it's that canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Warning. Right? And what are we going to do to steer away from that? Uh, the Road is another one. It's a... Um, Cormac McCarthy. Okay. It's a set in an unspecified time in the future. It's father and son on the road. The world has, it's post-apocalypse and it's basically dog eat dog. Yeah. And what the, what the man and the boy do to survive and what the father feels is necessary to protect his son. And I read that for the first time before I was a, a parent okay. and now reading it again as a, as a parent, it just hits a different, a whole different chord. Yeah. Um, but in that world, Fruit trees don't exist. The world, you know, the sun has been obliterated. I think there's a line where he, because you know, the atmosphere is just a giant cloud of ash, basically. Okay. And there's a line where he says, the earth circled her, I'm going to butcher it, but the earth circled her child like a, like a mother looking for her orphaned, uh, like for her orphaned daughter or son, right? Okay. Holding a lamp, mourning, right? Yeah. It's like this beautiful child that we've murdered, right? And, no, yeah, <laughs> I just got that picture in my head. Yeah, That's... it's. I mean, I'll have to find it later, for, just for my own self. But um, I think language and story has the ability to to hit home in a way that uh, can, you know, open our eyes and hit us in a place where we can feel something and understand something at a level that we we couldn't otherwise. Maybe we couldn't experience it, or the way the author has written it just means something. Yeah, that. Uh, that we don't hear in certainly in most television, whatever. Yeah. Um, so for, for me, a post-apocalyptic novel shows, it, it's almost like the scales fall off my eyes. I can say, oh my goodness, I'm eating a pear. <laughs> there might be a reality where I'm not eating a pear. I might live that reality, but yeah. right now here I'm eating a pear. And that might sound ridiculous, but I think there's a lot of scenarios in which 
we are move, we could we could live. Yeah. We are moving towards if we don't pump the brakes. Is that what gives you motivation in life in general? Is these you know I don't want to end up here. Yeah, it's, it sounds maybe like the <laughs> avoiding. Some, what are you aiming for? Yeah, but yeah. I think I think in a lot of ways, if we know what we're doing could create certain cat- catastrophes, yeah, then we have a moral obligation to do everything we can to avoid them. Right. And I think literature, you know, is that warning bell. Uh, stories like that say we're moving there. Yeah. Are we going to stop, or are we just going to go headlong? So yeah, I mean that's a big part of how I make my decisions is. I think, you know, looking at these other possibilities and saying, what are we going to do, right? And yeah. what if that's possible? What if it's likely? Okay, I'll tell this story quickly. Sure. Um, as a kid, you watch movies, you read books. I always put myself in the role of somebody in there, usually the lead, right? That's, right. That I think what confident people do is they want to know what would I do if I was leading this group of people through a post-apocalyptic I wonder right. how many people um, do that themselves so when I even now when I read books when I read Stephen King books uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of the one where they were um, guy had tied up his wife on a bed in the forest and he had a heart attack and so she was stuck in this cabin and the door was open and wolves were coming in like what would I do in that right. situation that there's an excitement, an exhilaration in putting yourself into that point, right? Or maybe it's building fear so you never get there. Right. That's that's the beauty in it. Well, I mean, we get to live all those scenarios. I, like the whole horror uh, genre, I think there's that adrenaline rush, that what if, that could I overcome, Yeah. right? That's very human and we need that, I think. Yeah. We need that. Hit of hit of adrenaline, danger, whatever, and I, we most of us live pretty safe lives, yeah. thankfully. But I think we our stories have conflict in them. All good stories have conflict because we conflict gives meaning, I think, to everything else. Right. Unfortunately, war does give peacetime meaning. Right. Right. And I'm not going to say we light need, doesn't look like light unless you see in the dark. Though. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It's all contrast. So I think we. We need that, and I, we need to envision those moments, right? What would we do if we, the wolves were coming, right? Right. And and it's just fun. A yeah, lot yeah. of it is just fun. So. I, I agree. So do you have a favorite genre? Is there something like you you are always in? Yeah. I think I think the dystopian realm is my favorite. Uh, I think there's a part of me that just enjoys the, chal- you know, like the challenge of the scenarios that are presented. Yeah. How would you survive? Could I survive? Probably not. Most scenarios, I probably die. Um, but I think it—it's intriguing on that level, and it's also, I think, and maybe this is pessimistic, but there's so many indicators, I think, in the world that you know we're not solving problems fast enough. We're going to see some of these ramifications play out on a large scale if we don't change. Right. That I think these uh, dystopian novels ask what they ask fictitious, they pose fictitious realities, but the question they're asking. Is real. is real, and yeah. it's to a real path we we could take. Okay, yeah. So I think for me that's a big one. Um, I like I like satires as well, things that cast reality in sort of a ridiculous or um, unusual light, so you can see it in a new way, or maybe laugh at yourself. Yeah, because um, <laughs> you can see yourself in the character, right? Some of the mistakes they make, you're like, oh, I've made that too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I brought, speaking of Elon Musk, I brought The Martian. Um, I, I think one of the roles... Do you, I mean, do you believe in people in outer space? In what, sorry? Do you believe in extraterrestrial? Oh, ex- 
extraterrestrials. Extraterrestrial, yeah. yeah. You know, I would have said most of my life, no. I think now, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. So I'm going to say it's, it's possible. possible. I have to say it's possible, but yeah. I don't know. But I, I think stories like that, A, it's just fascinating. He uses science to, you know, solve all these problems, which is brilliant. I don't understand any of it. But I think there's, I don't know if we can actually get to Mars as a society if we don't envision fictitious characters oh, living on Mars. Sure, <laughs> so there's, right. There's is, a, that, is that what the book's about? Yeah, it's a... Andy Weir? Exactly. It's a character. He gets stranded on Mars. His team thinks he's dead. There's a giant sandstorm. His his heart monitor goes blank. They think he's dead. They have to get off the planet right now. They oh. leave him because he's died. Is this the, the movie? They made a movie, oh, yeah, okay. Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... I'll just watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Less <laughs> work. Yeah, it'd be done in two hours. Yeah, so... But if we don't tell that story or those stories, do we ever get to Mars, right? Right. You know, yeah. a lot of people think the space race and all, you know, landing on the moon, all that was only possible because of Star Trek and all the rest, right? Right. If, and there's a lot of technologies we have now that were essentially, you know, their, their prototypes were on those fictitious, at right. the time, sets. They're communicators. Exactly. That, that was a cell phone back then, right? Yep. No one was using a walkie-talkie in outer space. No. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. So I think we, what we, like we were saying earlier, what we focus on, what we dwell on, we create. Yeah. And we get to choose. Yeah. What stories are we going to tell? How many books a year do you read? Uh, my brother and I had a little competition last year. I thought I was going to destroy him and he beat me by more than double, I think. Really? Uh, yeah. I read 31, 32 last year. I only yeah. know because we were doing this competition. But uh, I try and read a couple a month, you know, oh, wow. two, three, two, three yeah. books a month. Um, mostly just because I enjoy it. I find if I don't, if I don't do that, I'm just, I'm hungry. Like my, my mind is, yeah. it needs that. Um, both, so I do both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, almost anything I can get my hands on. Uh, in terms of nonfiction, but fiction, I I do tend towards the survival stories, the dystopian stories, um, war stories. Um, Let me ask you this. What's the, or is there a benefit of reading over listening to a book? Uh, yeah, I think there is. I think there's also benefit of listening over reading. It depends on, you know, they, they do certain things well and other things poorly. Yeah. When I read and I have a physical book in my hands, if it, especially if it's an author who's got craft, you know, if really wordsmithing, there's passages I just read over and over. So I just love it. It's, uh, you know, I do it because I'm slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's that too. And I'm not a fast reader. Um, but part of it is just the pleasure of the language for me. Yeah. I find I can hold in my mind in a different way if I'm seeing it on the page and I can take it at my own pace. Yeah. If I'm listening to it, sometimes the, the way the, uh, voice actors reading it will flavor the language in a different way than I might have heard it in my head too, right. which can be good or bad. Uh, it's just different. You're right, right. If the original author isn't reading it, uh, there's something about having books read by the person that wrote them right. um, for the audio book that there's a lot more beneficial. I know trying to read or trying to listen to a book that the author didn't write, it just doesn't feel right. I almost can't do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. When you read something, you're interpreting it. Right. Is we tone has meaning, cadence has meaning, all those things, and it's not on the page. Right, you're putting that on there. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's one thing with linguistics. Uh, there's some stat like 91% of meaning verbal communication is not the words; it's everything else. You right, know, eye contact, I believe that, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so. As a salesperson, I use that all the time. People's body language, I can bring them up, I can bring them down, yeah. I can see when they're wavering, I can see when I've 
bored them to death. Yeah. Right? And every person's different. You think you have your speech set out, and if you're really watching the person, you're always consistently changing your speeches for that particular person because so much of communication is just watching them. And yeah. like, dude, you need to wake up. I'm going to bring it up a little bit louder. Right. I'm talking a little bit faster. Are you, am I boring? You know, whatever right. you need to do to get them to where they need to be. Well, in my, in my days as an ESL teacher, one of the like, sort of revelation moments was a speaker talking about how language isn't just about fluency in a language. It's about, he called it confluence, fluency with another person. So uh, I can yeah. speak Spanish, but if I can't have a conversation with someone, do I really speak Spanish? Right. Right. Can I respond to their cues? Can, can I anticipate what they're going to say? Can I read into yeah. the layers of meaning? And we do that all the time. And so that's some, something that an author has to bring to a text in other ways right. because they don't have verbal... I was going to say the favorite author, like I said, like Stephen King, I like J.K. Rowling. I did um, this Pendragon series when I was a kid that, but they were super descriptive in a way that I could visualize a story as I was reading it. Like, so I had that movie playing in my head. There's other books that I read that I'm just like, what is this guy trying to get to or person trying to, I just can't, I can't get into him. Do you have, or have you ever had an author that you've read? You're just like, I can't do this guy. I just can't. Totally. I've had a lot that way that I've, when I was younger, I used to feel like if I started a book, I like I had to give it time, see what's going to happen. You know, I owe it to, I don't know who, but to finish this thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And now if I, if there's not something there or, you know, if I'm not compelled in the first 10 minutes of reading, I typically don't continue it. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I think there's an onus on the author to, to show there are, there's something of value right off the bat to the reader. Yeah. Um, but there's also, there's a million genres out there and there's lots of people who would enjoy books I don't yeah. and would hate the books I read. Yeah. So, but I've just learned my time matters and if I'm, if I'm not getting, if it's not valuable in some way, then I'm moving on. Yeah. And at least for, you know, for that book, for me, it might not be the right fit. Do you write it all? Yeah, I do. I, um, a couple of years ago when we were in Alberta last time, actually, I, I, I scratched an itch which had been bugging me for a long time and I wrote the first draft of a novel and it's still it's it's just sat there so (laughs) the first draft is done that was like three years ago Uh, I had plans of leaving it sit for a couple months and then returning to revise it and I reread it and just got totally lost in where to even begin you know there's there's a lot that I see that that I like and there's a lot that I see that uh, I don't know how to fix like I'm aware of some of the things that are wrong I'm aware of why they're wrong but you know, in some cases, it's a character that's throughout the whole book. And if I take that one character out, like, what are the implications for the story? <laughs> right. Right. Like, there's, there's entire chapters of dialogue that would have to be rewritten because that person no longer exists. Right. So, yeah. it's uh, it's something I think I I'm probably only going to really learn and understand by doing it and doing it poorly. And I, I was just going to say that exact same thing. So. One of my fears was starting the podcast that I wasn't going to be good at, and I wasn't. I sucked at it. I sucked at conversation. I sucked at the the way that I wanted it to go. I couldn't make it do that way. And even with uh, the video, I posted our first YouTube video, and it was horrible. Like all the switching of the cameras and the sound, none of it went the way I thought it should go. But I just sucked it up, and I put it out anyways. And some people think that's not a good way to do things. But I think maybe you have to write three or four books and them to be bad. And for people to tell you they're bad, and you go, yeah, that one's bad. I'm right. going to chuck that one out, and I'm going to try again tomorrow and, and do another one. Or take it to a publisher, you know, whatever it is. But 
I wonder why people are so fearful of putting out something bad. No one's good at something right away, ever, right. ever. It was the whole cliche of, you know, Thomas Edison, what he had 189 ways to not invent a light bulb. All he needed was yeah. one way to invent one, right? Yeah. And I think it's hard to live that truth sometimes because we're very, I don't know, we are, we're afraid of failing. but Egotistical. Absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe we think it communicates something about us, but we learn through failure. We, you know, as babies, we don't, we don't walk until... We we fall down on our butts a million times, right? Right. So all all things that are worth doing are worth doing well, but you know, it's painful till we get to that point, <laughs> yeah, right? No. And I think there's a lot of you know that whole process. If I never touch that book again, that draft, it matters to me that I wrote it. I learned right. a lot about myself. I enjoyed it. There's sections. It's weird, but there's sections I'll reread, and I think it's hilarious. Like I think this is like <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever heard. And it's like I'm hearing it. Is it a satire? It's a, yeah. So it's a dystopian satire. It's like okay. a post-apocalyptic world um, with superhuman characters as well. Nice. And yeah, I tried to write it the first time in a sort of a serious take, and just depressed the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I can't do this. I'm rereading it. It's painful. Yeah. So. I hit upon an idea that was that was more lighthearted, a different angle, and I ran with it, and I in, enjoyed writing it immensely. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, where to go with it now, but I'm glad it's there. And I think I think if it doesn't look anything like its current form by the time I finish it, there's there's worth in it, and there's a lot of things I would characters I would use, events I would use that would maybe take shape in another story. Yeah. Jordan Peterson, the first book he wrote was called Maps of Meaning. I think it took him ten years. Only book he wrote up until his most recent one. Um, and he literally went through that book sentence by sentence, word by word, phrase by phrase, paragraph by paragraph. And he debated every angle he could. Should I use this word? What are the 10 words I could use? It took him 10 years to put that book together. It's probably not a good way to write a book. It's a good way to write your first book. Right. Right? That you challenge yourself to be excellent at, at doing it. And for him, I think it got him someplace really, really good. But I think there's also value in writing 15 books and putting them all out there. And if one gets published, woohoo! Yeah. Right? That they're all successes. You did it. You, you, yeah. you put the work in. Is it the one that the majority of the population want? Who cares? Yeah. You did the work. Yeah. Well, Cormac McCarthy, who writes The Road, he I, he rarely gives interviews. Gave an interview with Oprah, and she asked him, essentially, to pitch his book, right? Why should <laughs> someone read whatever? And his answer was basically like, I don't care if you read it, read it if you want to. Yeah. That, that was it. And she didn't, is like, what do I say to that, right? It was just so, he's not writing so people will read his book. Right. He, sure, he wants people to read it, but it, that's not, he would write it anyway. Right. Even if no one read it, he'd still be writing. And he's still writing to this day. Yeah. He's in his 70s or 80s or something. He's still going. And he's one of the, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion, the, the, a living master. Yeah. Um, but he didn't get there overnight. And, and if he had never gotten published, his work would still matter. That, that's the value of artists, true artists, right? True, uh, someone doesn't paint a picture for somebody. They paint a picture and then somebody likes it or somebody wants it. Right. Or someone, you know, they, they're doing what they want to do. And I think we need a little, maybe not 100% everyone, stop what you're doing, just go do what you like because right. some people like to get drunk. Right. Probably not, <laughs> not a good place to be. But we need to do more of that. Just, just do it because you like it. That's right. it. I think there's value in that. Well, I think there's a lot of you know, especially in the publishing world, whatever, and you do, you need to listen to the feedback you get, et cetera. But ultimately, I think you need to write what you need to write. Right. And that's the bottom line. Yeah. You know, if, if that's what is in you, then that's what you do. And 
there are there's you know some authors have said that you know I've de- I decided my genre based on pure market calculation. This was at the most readership. <laughs> yeah. This paid the most. That's what I did. They made a career of it. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's what Good they that's what they need to do, right? But my my experience has been the primary value in that is so far beyond anything I would ever get commercially yeah. from it. I'd be thrilled if if it something I wrote got published at some point and it did well. But I hope I would do it anyway. Right. Yeah. All right. So we're coming to your time when we want to shut down. I want uh, you to pick a book that we're going to read. Sure, you'll do it really quickly. And then you'll bring you back again and we'll discuss that book plus whatever else we feel like talking about. I would love the challenge of of reading and having a conversation with somebody well-versed in uh, linguistics and literature. Okay, uh, can I pick a new book that I haven't read before? Or sure, I, you know what? I I'm I'll I will challenge myself because I'm I take it's hard to get me interested in a book. Whatever the book is, I will dig through the entire book. Alrighty, okay. Let's uh, let's go with Slaughterhouse Five, Kurt Vonnegut. Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, it's uh so World War Two dystopian in a very bizarre way, okay. uh, but the war is dystopian. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just real-life dystopia. Uh, and I think there's lots of fertile ground there. So Cool. Yeah, yeah let's do it. I will uh, pick up the book. So um, everybody like and share our social media. You're not a big social media guy, are you? No, not really. All right. So um, I'll put up whatever. If people want to talk to you, they can track you down on Facebook or wherever. But like and share our media. Thank you for listening. We love you guys. And now I'm going to try to shut down two programs without looking stupid. So uh, hang on a second. I think I... Nope. There it is.